Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the season one finale of Mark's movie collection. This is a pretty important movie for me, as you may know, as I may have talked about before. This is my most favorite movie, and this has been for a long time. So I probably first saw this movie when I was seven or eight years old on VHS. My uncle loves this movie to death, and uh, I was staying at my grandparents' house over the summer, and he was there, and we would watch it together, and it was very, very cool. My uncle is a, a big-time car guy. He still has his uh, 1957 Chevy Bel Air from high school kind of tier, you know, and uh, that's a really cool car, and it'll hopefully I, I might get to some movies where we talk about that a little more. Uh, specifically, the 57 is uh, is his favorite, is my favorite too. Uh, but I do love my 55s and my 56s, my tri-fives, as they are called, because there are three years uh, in the 50s. But I love this movie. Um, this movie does not feature a 57 in a feature capacity. There, I think there is one or two in the movie. This movie is set in 1962, and it is George Lucas's... Um, not feature debut, because that was uh, THX 1138, but I guess major motion picture debut called American Graffiti. And it's a big movie for me. It's a big movie for George. It's a big movie for Marsha Lucas. It's a big movie for uh, a lot of people. It's a big movie for Gloria Katz. It's a big movie for Willard Hoyk. It's a big movie for Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, Paul Lamont, uh, Cindy Williams, Charles Martin Smith, Candy Clark, Mackenzie Phillips, Harrison Ford, even. Harrison Ford makes his appearance. It's a big movie. Um, this movie actually features Wolfman Jack as the mysterious quote-unquote disc jockey, but ultimately as himself. And it is the... The premise, the premise, if you will, is, or I'll start with the tagline. The tagline is, where were you in 62? And the premise is, it's 1962 on essentially the last kind of school night of the year, or not school night, but the last night of the year for the school year, there's a, a year-end uh, dance, the sock hop, and two of our, our three Two of our four male main characters are ostensibly going to college the next morning. And it is a meditation on youth. It is a meditation on adolescence. It is a wonderful incorporation of music, especially popular music of, of the time, of the setting into the fabric of the movie. It is a wonderful blend of storylines. And from what I understand, from what I have been told, movies were not made like this before American Graffiti. Movies didn't have several diverging and intersecting storylines before American Graffiti. Movies did not have amazing popular music soundtracks like American Graffiti. And this from a essentially sophomore filmmaker, it 
you know, it the movie takes place uh, almost entirely at night. In um, 1973 technology, it is film. It is these huge cameras. It is lights. There are these wonderful, beautiful cars in the movie. John Milner's uh, quote-unquote piss yellow deuce coupe five window is, you know, maybe one of the most iconic vehicles that you could ever, like, by silhouette, I'll be like, yeah, that's Milner's coupe. You know, it's it's tremendous. It is wonderful. It is. I don't. I don't want to say that it's inspiring, but it is at least semi autobiographical. Uh, George Lucas took from a lot of his own youth to create this movie, and I think that is part of why it has it rings, perhaps so true. But it is you know a little bit like uh it is slightly embellished i guess would be the word for it but i say slightly because the world was definitely a different place and this shows a an incredible portrait of america at the time and it feels so believable i mean i don't i'm going to watch it again i've seen it a bunch of times, but I'm going to watch it again because I, I just, I like it. But go ahead and, and you watch it. And we'll talk about it. I I don't think I checked to see if it was streaming anywhere. Let me pause this recording now and, and check it out. Okay, so I checked it using the, the magic of pausing the recording. And it seems that you can uh, own a rent from iTunes, Prime, uh, Google, things like that. But it's not streaming anywhere free as of this recording right now, as of this website that I loaded up to check it. But I own it twice. I actually own, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to rephrase that. I think I own it four times. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into that because I had the VHS. And I've had the VHS probably since I was nine years old. My parents found out that I liked watching it with my uncle and they bought it for me. Uh, just like they did Star Wars, and that's why I still have Star Wars VHS. Uh, the original tril trilogy, you know. Um, then I bought a DVD. And I think what happened with that DVD is I messed it up. I, I used to be very careless with my discs. I would just leave them out. If they were kind of in the rotation, they would just never go back into a case. So then, as I was maybe browsing a store, I saw that there was... Uh, what is called the Franchise Collection, which is the American Graffiti Drive-In Double Feature. And it has American Graffiti and more American Graffiti. And I'm going to say that more American Graffiti leaves a lot to be desired. But it might warrant further examination in the future. However, my memories of it are not fond and... If I were to need to describe that movie in one word right now, it would be kind of goofy. So, anyway, I have a DVD with American Graffiti and more American Graffiti. And then, this is maybe the the touchstone, the cornerstone of, you know, maybe the, the icing on top of the American Graffiti cake. The cake that uh, I have had in my many year relationship with American Graffiti. For my birthday, when I turned 30, I believe, 
it was my 30th. My wife goes ahead and says, come home early from work. We're going to go somewhere. And she proceeds to drive me to a, an essentially a pop-up drive-in theater. She has invited almost all of my friends. And at this drive-in theater, uh, we watched the American Graffiti Blu-ray. And that was just, that was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, if you find somebody that knows you that well, definitely keep them. She knows me very well. But that's something I'll never, never forget. And that's kind of the, the movie just continues to live with me in, in many ways. That just being the most recent one and a very powerful one in and of itself. So yeah, go ahead and check out American Graffiti if you haven't already. If you have, I mean, maybe watch it again. Maybe you missed something. I don't know. Or if you want to just keep listening, go ahead. I, you know, I just, I talk about things. I don't, I don't run through the entire plot. I don't, you know, I skip around. I do things. There will be spoilers. That's how this works. You, sh you should know. But yeah, go ahead and check it out. So, you just saw American Graffiti. You just saw it, I just saw it. I'm going to adjust this microphone. Hopefully we just saw it, right? Hopefully we saw American Graffiti. That would be cool if we both saw it. If you didn't see it, if you didn't see it, I don't know that anything here is going to ruin the movie, heavy quotes, ruin the movie. It is nice to not know what's going to happen, I think, to see things unfold. But I don't know that there is an M. Night-style twist or, or anything like that. So I just, I really, you should really watch this movie before listening to this. You should think about it and definitely form your own opinions because... The nature of this movie is uh, the nature of a movie that's very personal. It's a very personal movie for the filmmakers. It is um, personal for a lot of the actors. It's personal for me, definitely. And when upon watching it, you may decide that it is personal for you as well. So that being said, I'm going to get into it now. You have up until right now, essentially, up until the boop to... Uh, to watch the movie. Go watch it. Go watch it. It's good. It's on the AFI list. It's good. Go watch it. So. I I don't know where to start. I, I've made attempts at organizing my thoughts. And we'll see how that goes. Because I have a lot of them. Uh, especially for this movie. So I'm going to start out with. The music. The music of this movie is not quite a character, um, but the sound design and the music in this movie is wonderful. The cars sound powerful. They sound real, right? The mixing, um, the music. Uh, did I talk about the mixing? Uh, hold on. Let me 
Uh, yeah, I, I talk about the mixing later. Let me let me just talk about the music, right? I put sound design at the top with music, and I guess maybe I meant the sound design of the music. But let's talk about the music first, and then we'll get into the sound design of the music, which is dumb of me. But the music is almost the Greek chorus of the movie. The music is ever-present, and... It is pervasive through every scene. And it's interesting because you'll even switch scenes still hearing the same song, and the song is ostensibly in the world. The reason that the song is in the world is that this is before portable cassette players. I need to mute every phone I have, every device I have right now. I'm so... I am such an amateur. just have things beeping and bonging and punking and thunk. Boop. You know, we lost the beeps, the sweeps, and the creeps at this point. I mean, I have a watch that makes noises. It's dumb. It's dumb. Pull that. Get into the settings. Silent mode, please. Okay. Back to the music being pervasive and ever present. This was before this was before cassette players. This was before any kind of media that you could play in your car. Obviously you cannot have a turntable in your car and that's how music was distributed uh in 1962. The movie takes place in 1962. If I didn't if I didn't get to that at the top. I don't remember. I don't recall. I, I actually recorded that a few days ago. And then I watched the movie over a little bit of time. I did a lot of notes. I tried to organize them. Now, several days later, I am recording. So I put more effort into this one just because of the love of the movie. I digress. <clears throat> you can't have a turntable in a car because of the vibrations. You'll mess up your record. It won't sound right, so on and so forth. But cassettes weren't a thing. Like A cassette did exist. I guess, in some shape or form. Maybe it was magnetic, maybe it wasn't. But these were probably enormous devices. And uh, took a sip of that. Americano, shout out, Bandrew. Club Americano, not as uh, nationalist as it seems. So the idea of... of Everybody kind of doing their own thing in their car didn't exist at the time. So everybody was basically listening to the same radio station. There were probably probably a lot less radio stations as well. But this night on, on in this town, they really had the one cool radio station, um, which is uh, WGRB. Oh, I am such an asshole if I didn't remember this. Uh, well, I mean, I remember it because I hear it in my head at the beginning of the movie. They, they say the call the call letters right before Bill Haley in the comments rock around the clock. But I I am such an idiot. Uh, American Graffiti Radio Call. XERB, right? And X means it's from Mexico or something like that. Uh, there's, there's, there's radio minutia there if you if you're really into radio by all means hit me up on twitter and explain it to me at cool mark d cool with a c and mark with a k so 
everybody's listening to XERB because that is the cool radio station. They play the good music. Therefore, when you're out on the street, driving, walking, whatever, when you're in the world, you just hear this naturally, right? It just, it is the soundtrack of your life, of the night, of of this night, which is ostensibly a Saturday night or Friday night or whatever the case is. So the the sound design of the music actually changes. It becomes uh, ethereal at points because... Uh, at that point, the character is is not in a car and is kind of coming to a, a crossroads where he'll need to to make a decision. And I'll talk about the characters and their plots later. But um, you know, that's a what a wonderful idea. And this this type of music was never done before. Uh, the the way that this movie is scored is literally popular music. There is no there is no real score to the movie. In fact, to create tension, what they actually do is have no music and use environmental sounds because there is so much music in the movie. Um, I think there's two soundtracks that are out. There was the original, and then they released a second one, which had more songs and and maybe some songs that were not necessarily in the movie. But you know, it's it's a it's a little bit of a money grab for those songwriters, but they're still good songs. So the idea of of a music supervisor didn't exist. Right now that is a position that kind of came to be. And a music supervisor would be the one to pick the popular music and and things like that and I guess work with a director because you know, the music and the sound design have such an impact on how the audience perceives the movie. Actually, George Lucas picked all the music. He had all his records from high school. He borrowed a turntable from his sister and just kind of sat down and and listened to the music, you know? So it's just, it's crazy. It's insane to think of, of the originality of this at the time. We cannot conceive of it. We were born in a world where we're a post-American graffiti world. And I say we, I mean... Definitely me, but most people, I guess, listening to this, because if you were born before 1973, how, how old are you? Old. And you wouldn't listen to a podcast. You know, you'd be like, where's my vitriola? Ah. No, I'm, that's a joke. There are plenty of old people that listen to podcasts. I'm sure they all live in the Bay Area and have wonderful tech jobs. But yeah, you know, this is a, a banging soundtrack, too. It's, uh, you know, like Bill Haley, Comets, Rock Around the Clock, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, Beach Boys, The Platters, Del Vikings, Del Shannon, Booker T and the MGs, fucking classic race song, Paradise Road. You know the shit's going to go down when you hear Booker T and the MGs play Green Onions, right? But maybe one of the more major music, uh, and I, I want to use like note or beat but these are all music terms as well, so it's confusing. One of the more uh, major music-focused plot points kind of involves the, the transitional era, right? And uh, John Milner says it uh, to Carol. They're, they're writing, and, and we'll talk about it, but we'll talk about their adventure, but in this line of dialogue, you know, she turns on the radio or whatever. It's the Beach Boys. Turns it off. She says, why did you do that? Cranks it up. 
or she cranks it up and he turns it off says she says why'd you do that and he says i don't like that surfing shit rock and roll's been going downhill ever since buddy holly died and this is um such a wildly impactful day the day music died is generally what it is called it is february 3rd 1959 buddy holly had uh, had broken up with the crickets but by all means had a wonderfully promising future going forward um he played a music that really spoke to the youth music was was we listen to buddy holly now and we're like what is this boring tame you know junk but the world was so different you know things like uh you know peggy sue got married ray vaughn these are, are are wonderful songs that we can maybe appreciate them because they are so stripped down if you really really love uh love music you might be able to get into buddy holly and understand that we are our posts buddy holly and we have surpassed buddy holly but his influence still lives on in, in the music that we listen to now and make now so buddy holly the big bopper uh, who's also on the soundtrack with chantilly lace and uh richie valens which i believe is also on the soundtrack with uh do you want to dance a wonderful uh first generation american artist who was a, a kid i think he was like 19 or something and they they got on a, a small charter plane and they crashed and they all died everybody died and these were three huge stars at the time. So uh, Lou Diamond Phillips famously did uh, a Richie Valens biopic called La Bamba, which is a really fun movie. But this was such an impactful thing. Don McLean wrote maybe one of the more known songs, American Pie. And it's about, you know, the, the death of Buddy Holly and then the, maybe the changing of, of rock and roll. Right, because after this was was surf, and then uh, the you know barrage of folk singers that we know today from the anti-war movement and things like that, and then the seventies was hot disco and muscle cars. So, you know, this was maybe not carefully chosen, but very optimal of a time period because it was in that transitional phase for music and having that character voice that concern really put people who grew up through that kind of on the spot they're like wow yeah and i watched it this time and I actually thought about it and i was like holy crap he's right you know so and my phone keeps vibrating i think i'm gonna throw it in a lake uh i'll actually just turn that one so this is already just in, in soundtrack alone this is already kind of going deep into into the theme of the movie, the concept of the movie, and and it all kind of harmoniously, uh, maybe not harmoniously, but it it, uh, it you know they touch upon each other these uh, parts of the movie to to create this concept as a whole, whether we realize it or or, or not, you know. But I think I'm good on on the music for now, so we can talk about. Maybe the elephant in the room, which uh, especially in in 2019 parlance would be uh, an a, an issue, a hot button issue, maybe perhaps. 
but it's the female characters. And uh, there was one, there was exactly one screenwriter of the three who was a female, and she's a very important screenwriter in the history of movies, and that is Gloria Katz. And she had the opportunity and took the opportunity to create some really good female characters. And the fact that they are not given closure at the end of the movie in the, you you know, they're not giving closure at the end of the movie doesn't detract from them. And, and some people may think that some people may feel that way. I don't think so. Um, but I do know that it was a movie, you know, made essentially by a boy about boys. Uh, and we'll kind of get into that in a minute in the, I guess, you know, production kind of creation phase, um, mechanics of movie making, but, you know, we can touch on these characters, uh, and they're wonderful characters. Lori is played by Cindy Williams, and she is uh, Kurt's younger sister, Kurt being the character played by uh, Richard Dreyfus. She's also Steve's girlfriend, uh, Steve being played by Ron Howard. And she's an interesting character because she is dating, you know, a, a very popular boy class president who's older. But she's also a cheerleader. She is accomplished in her space. And she is a strong character that actually really knows what she wants. And she pursues it. And and she goes after it. She's not a damsel in distress waiting to be saved. The opposite. And that's a wonderful statement, especially for a movie made in the 70s. About the 60s. Right? Because the the concept of women, the perception of women back then is is probably worse than we had it now. I know that we've gone through cycles and things like that. Um, I remember like the early 90s was a, a big kind of movement towards, you know, equality, essentially. But that didn't necessarily play out. I feel like it's going to stick this time, though, 2019, this time, just because of how we communicate as a society. Uh, and that's the internet, and that's maybe a whole you know, different, wildly different podcast hours long discussion. Anyway, there's also Debbie played by Candy Clark, who was, you know, initially a model, but, uh, you know, she's this very beautiful, you know, independent woman. She's an older woman, more experienced than, and I say older woman, she's the oldest female character, but she's also in high school. So, you know, probably a senior that year or whatever the case is. Uh, She's definitely under the drinking age and she is, you know, sexually experienced. She is independent. She doesn't, she chooses to, to be with somebody versus needing to. And, you know, there comes a point where maybe a past decision comes to haunt her and she's just like, ugh, you know, that's disgusting. That's gross. And I was like, hey, that's a really good, you know, way to evaluate. Like she wasn't, she wasn't down on herself about that. She's like, that happened and I'm going to move on. Uh, I don't think anything untowards happened. I think, you know, it was was mostly, you know, fine, just unpleasant in that, you know, the, the gentleman in particular was maybe unsavory and he, he, he's a complete dick in the movie. He's just a, a dumb 
motherfucking asshole. Anyway. Carol. uh, Carol's our youngest female character. And she's played by Mackenzie Phillips. Carol, I want to say, is... She's not maybe specified in age, but Mackenzie Phillips was like 12 or 13. But Mackenzie Phillips was the lead singer in a band with her friends. So I guess... um, you know, she got uh, discovered essentially out of performance, you know. She was a very uh, precocious, precocious, I guess, teenager, you know, preteen. And precocious being like uh, very intelligent and, and mature. Um, but she's she plays a, a very strong, young and independent character who is also precocious. Essentially, she, she, she plays a version of herself is what it looks like. And... Carol really wants to to grow up before her time. She is young, and really, ultimately, this is the you know what I'm seeing of of kids today. Like I have family members who are young, and they're just you know popping off on you know buying cars and getting loans and Roth IRAs, and it's like just be a kid. You're like 12. What are you doing? You know, but maybe that's every kid. Maybe every kid wants to grow up before their time. And, you know, maybe that's the universal message of kids in general. Um, But Carol's also not a damsel. Fucking the opposite, right? Carol's almost an instigator. And that's great. It's a great thing. Like, uh, it's not even, I don't even think she's a bad role model. I think she's a good role model, if anything. And then uh, there's Wendy, which Wendy is maybe the most minor female characters. There are. Well, maybe not the most minor. Buddha is probably the most minor female character or the two girls that walk in after. But anyway, Wendy's maybe uh, a more um, major minor female character. Like if this was uh, like if this was a thrice album, major minor. And Wendy was played by Debbie Solis, who had only the one credit for American Graffiti. You know, I thought that she was kind of fun and, and, and cool. But I also, I love everything about this movie, like fucking everything. So, you know, that might be biased, but she plays maybe a, a, a an old flame, Kurt, Curtis's old flame. And she doesn't do a whole lot either, but she's also not a damsel. When it comes time to make a decision, she stays loyal to her friend and uh, she leaves Kurt, like kind of on the street, like peace out, dude. So, you know, those are the female characters. They are not damsels they are not MacGuffins you know it's nice to to be able to however many years later geez how, how many years is it 73 to 2019 is a crap ton of years well 43 years no that can't be right geez that wow if it's uh I need yeah there we go 46 years so yeah my math was boosted there I also had a hard time getting into calc not the class the actual application on my computer because I was hitting the wrong buttons but going back 46 years and, and seeing these characters which are they are not the focus of the movie this movie does not pass the Bechdel test if you really you know want to get into that far about it but they're also not like oh help ah you know 
so Gloria at the end of of the movie really argued and and pushed George to have you know closure or um I guess cards I I don't know what they're called but like epilogues you know for these women and George kind of pushed back and he's like look the movie is really about these four guys and it's he's not wrong and ultimately really it's about two guys it's about Steve and Kurt but the the way the movie came George has a lot of say in that because the way the movie came came about it really is is his idea from whole cloth it is his you know so it was initially unstructured he said well i want to make kind of like a documentary about you know that time period i want to document this i want to be a documentarian and it was initially unstructured and nobody wanted to make that movie not a damn person so you know he had to workshop that script a lot he had to make it into a movie with a plot and things uh but even then the movie is four plots that are loosely coupled they're tightly integrated but loosely coupled four plots and that is not how movies were made back then so he had a really hard time getting that movie made eventually he said i'll make it for $750,000 that is a an inexpensive movie for the time you know but he was uh he was more of an art house type movie maker uh he was friends with Francis Ford Coppola who they had to ask you know they had to ask Francis Ford Coppola to to sign on to the movie because he needed a big name and the godfather was kind of just coming out you know he had just finished shooting and he was getting a lot of press on it and you know they knew the godfather was going to be a big thing i don't mean i don't know that they knew it was going to be as big as it is but they knew you know and just the 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 style of the movie was controversial uh it was it was very difficult but they managed to make it for a price that was low enough that they were given the freedom to do what they wanted or george really ultimately but uh you know there was there was a crew of people george lucas francis for coppola and brian de palma were were notoriously friends back then and they kind of you know helped each other out a lot and brian de palma notably calling out star wars as a hot piece of trash and the caused the movie to be re-edited uh, also notably by Marsha Lucas who is also an editor on American Graffiti and it became the, the the work of art or maybe not the work of art but the sensation the saga the legacy that it is now even though it, I, I guess it's a work of art it's very operatic but it's it's very adventurous. it's very po- anyway we'll, we'll talk about Star Wars some other day So one of the things that came out of his, well, one of the several things, I guess, that came out of his initial desire to make a documentary that then turned into like a movie with a plot is that there is a lot of interesting technical considerations. You will notice watching this movie, especially on dvd blu-ray or streaming you will notice a lot of adr dialogue 
I had never noticed this on VHS because you can't see shit on a VHS. But with all these flat HD panels that just litter my my space, even my phone is fucking HD or 1440p or whatever it is, 4K, who knows? You're going to notice a lot of ADR. And the style of shooting and the location of shooting really they lent themselves to the physical space and the visuals of the movie right they they put you there but they probably made recording dialogue way more fucking difficult than it needed to be so adr and i i can tell you that in the era in the 70s there was a fuck ton of adr so i think that maybe a lot of the technology was expensive to record dialogue well and things like that. And sometimes it was just easier to get the shot. And fucking pause, the air conditioner just turned on shit. Sometimes it's better to just get the shot and move on. It's, it's costly. Time, money, all those things. Uh, making a movie is a very difficult uh, financial endeavor as well. So... You know, the movie sound, otherwise, banging on all cylinders. I love it. It feels good. feels right. Even the ADR feels pretty good. feels pretty natural most of the time. But it is what it is. So another thing that happened is that there was no director of photography. Originally, George uh, hired two camera operators and said, um, yeah, just go around and uh, film these kids. He wanted uh, he wanted it to feel very natural, very um, documentarian. So he uh, he hired two very talented camera operators, which are apparently these two French guys, and they have like a couple credits in France and or Canada, maybe Montreal seems maybe more likely. And um, no DP, right? No no kind of overarching lighting guy or whatever use natural lighting make it feel natural keep it fast cheaper very uh gorilla right you come in real quick hit it leave but it was too dark it was too dark the lenses had to be wide open there was no way that they could hold focus because the focus plane was something like four inches on an actor's face if an actor just moved a, a little bit if you move your head a little bit you're just out of focus instantly um I know this as a photographer because I, I actually like to, I love shooting with a shallow depth of field. It's maybe one of my favorite things to do if I'm not shooting anything kind of wide. So focus plane is the area, the distance, the minimum and maximum distance from the lens where things are in focus. This has to do with the way that light is routed through the lens. It bends kind of makes its way through the lens and, and comes back out onto the film or the digital sensor as we, you know, as we fucking spacemen would understand it, right? Because it was completely a f not real idea to people in 1973. So there's a focus plane is affected by the aperture of the lens. The wider the lens is opened, the, the wider the aperture, the more light comes in, but the less you have in focus. And the closer you get to the lens, the smaller the focus plane becomes as well. 
So you can get really, 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 really shallow, really shallow depth of focus, uh, depth of field, uh, or a really shallow, a really short focus plane when things are close to the camera versus when things are a little further away. So this is the kind of um, thing that they were dealing with. So ultimately, they, you know, George at you know eleventh hour needed to call in a favor. He needed he needed a, a, somebody to like this and and help shoot it. Um, so he called Haskell Wexler, who was um, maybe a, a, a more known director of photography back then. Um, he did a pretty famous movie called Medium Cool, which I don't know that it stood the test of time. I didn't hear about it until I started looking him up a little bit. I had heard the name, definitely. And he did some stuff later that you would recognize for sure. But apparently Medium Cool was like a big deal at the time. And Haskell Wexler is actually one of the guys that helped George get into USC. They had a, a long relationship. And he was, you know, he was very creative, I think, in how he handled it. And it shows. This is the complete polar opposite of the night scenes from 1974's Gone in 60 Seconds. This is completely fucking opposite. You know, this is a really professional endeavor so he uh he would boost the natural lighting in that he would put some some lights in the cars like where the dashboard would be and things like that to light the actors so that we could see the actors in the car and there are a couple of cars where those lights aren't necessarily there and you really can't see the actors in the cars so when you do see an actor in a car just know that that lighting was uh very intentional and agonizingly placed if you're ever uh, trying to, if you're into photography and you're experimenting with lighting or or cinematography, right? Photography, same thing. Don't feel bad if you can't get it right. This is this is a genuinely hard thing. But uh, there are YouTube channels like Film Riot where they do exactly this kind of lighting, and and with technology, it's become a lot easier for us. So definitely watch Film Riot, but you know, don't feel like you're a failure. Because you're not. You, it, that guy that lighted, lit that movie had been doing it for years and failed infinitely more times. It feels natural, though, right? They would they would put you know big lights on the streetlights so that when you drove under a streetlight, there was enough light, things like that. Um, they would uh, call stores, and they would be like, hey, can you leave your lights on, or, or can you have somebody come by and turn the lights on at night when you close and stuff like that? And they would use the natural light from the storefronts. This is nice because usually this is of nice soft light too. So it just helped kind of boost the the lighting floor and just helped everything out. The movie's definitely shot at night. And I think there might be one day for night kind of scene, which is down by the canal or whatever. I think that might be day for night. It, it doesn't quite feel like nighttime. But it that doesn't detract from it at all. Um, it's... There is film grain, obviously. When you have a higher speed film, you are going to get more film grain. But it feels like the texture of it. It feels like the time. It feels like you can reach out and touch it. And that is just a really, a really good feeling that people pay a lot for nowadays, right? That just happened back then, organically. So another interesting thing that uh, that George wanted 
was to have the two operators kind of running all the time and have them capture essentially both sides of a conversation. So there was a rig that they could drive in between two cars. Whenever two people in cars are having a conversation, they're actually being filmed real time. And there's a rig with two cameras facing opposite to each other with two operators on the rig in between them. So that's how I always thought that movies were made. I didn't realize that you would film one side of the conversation, then turn around and film all the reactions or the opposite side, right? Change the setup and then film the other side. But this is what they did. And and due to the mobility of the lighting in the cars, right? The, the, the dashboard lights and things like that. And maybe a couple of lights on the rig itself in the middle. You, you get a really clear picture. You can see what, what is happening. So another, um, another interesting side effect of this documentary plan, or maybe not a side effect, maybe this is a side effect of George Lucas himself. Uh, I heard once that uh, somebody said if George Lucas could make a movie without actors, he would. So I don't know that he loves the actor part, the interacting with the actors. I think he was maybe a lot better with it back then because there were no other options. But definitely in the prequels, we can see that he put a lot of focus on doing things as computer operated as possible and things like that. So... George offered maybe little direction, not not a lot of direction. Uh, most of the actors in the making of featurette, which there is an hour and 15 minutes of making of on the DVD. I didn't watch the Blu-ray because that means that I would have to have plugged in a PS3 somewhere here. And I haven't seen if there's any additional features on the Blu-ray. I've only seen the Blu-ray. But in the making of on the DVD the actors would mention that everything was terrific. That was his word. Every, after every take, that was terrific. Let's do it again. That was terrific. Let's do it again. And what they discovered and what I've discovered watching the movie, but I didn't understand, was that he would look for organic mistakes. The first scene in the movie was a mistake where, where Terry runs the, the Vespa into the soda machine that was a mistake, but he stayed in character and he just went on with the scene. And that is the most wonderful, perfect, oh my God, a watch. Fuck. I have so many things that make noise in here right now. Hold on. I got to get rid of this thing. So the scene where, where Terry Fields, uh, who's played by Charles Martin Smith, the, the first scene in the movie where he shows up at, uh, at Mel's, it's sunset and it's gorgeous. And that Mel's was in downtown San Francisco. And it's no longer there. It was actually taken down shortly after the movie was filmed. So that scene, he bumps the, the Vespa up over the, the curb, then stalls it out and it jumps, it leaps out, hits a soda machine and stalls. He had never ridden a scooter or a motorcycle before, like, an hour before shooting that. So he had a plan on what he was going to do. He wasn't really given direction. It was just like, do what you would do. Say the line as you would say it. Things like that. And he made a mistake. But he stayed in character, and that got printed, and that is fucking mind-blowing. You couldn't have directed somebody to do it that good. 
that well, I think. So that's the kind of thing that maybe Lucas was looking for because he was initially trying to make a documentary. So he wanted it to feel natural. And natural doesn't mean bad. It just means uh, he wanted to kind of scrape away at the artifice of making a movie, perhaps. He, he did a lot of artifice in THX 1138. It was a completely fabricated world with minimal dialogue. So he was probably like terrific on every take. But this is this is what he did, right? So it ended up feeling like a documentary. And part of that comes from George Lucas and Gloria Katz and Bill Hoik growing up during that time. They were in high school around 1962. Many of those characters are based on composites of, of the characters that they knew and grew up with. However, George in particular, um, kind of coming up with the main thrust of the movie and the majority of, I guess, the plot, not all of it, but the majority of it, he says in the making of, he says, you know, every character is me except Steve and every character being of the main four. So George Lucas has himself in Terry. He was a nerd for a while and things like that. And then he was, he was John Milner. He was, you know, a race car driver. He was working as a mechanic in high school and he wanted to be a race car driver or a race mechanic or something thereabouts. And he actually almost died. He got into, he was pulling out of his driveway and somebody just T-boned him. And that was kind of the end of that for him, you know, but uh, that was, he was still like in high school at the time, maybe just going into junior college. But in, in, in junior college, he studied anthropology or I guess in college, maybe if he went to USC, uh, which, you know, leaving the small town of Modesto where George grew up, where this takes place ostensibly, even though it's Shot uh, in uh, Pomona? Where was it shot? I know that they got kicked out of San Rafael, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on where it was shot. Locations. Okay. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Petaluma. There we go. Petaluma. Notably where Lagunitas is, uh, you know, taproom is. Petaluma has a lot of cool stuff. It's a nice, chill town, Bay Area-ish. So they filmed in Petaluma because they got kicked out of San Rafael the first night. You know, so he essentially grew up in a town just like that, and he went off to college. He, he took the risk uh, to change. So in a way, he is Kurt. In a way, he is Milner. In a way, he is Terry. But he did study uh, anthropology in college, and he realized that, you know, he, he says uh, cruising was a uniquely American mating ritual. And that has a lot to do with America after the war, uh, you know, post-war boom. There was just a manufacturing boom. It's just like everybody have a fucking car, you know. Uh, everybody was having babies. Uh, people were moving out to the suburbs. A lot of the suburbs were developed uh, as housing for GIs coming back from the war and things like that. I know where I live, there was a specific area that was kind of made for that and all that that still exists to a certain extent. So, you know, it, it's, it's definitely capturing a time, but he, he also says that it's about transitions. Oh, I'm out of coffee. I need, needed some water. He also says that it's about transitions. And 
this also seems to be very true, right? Incredibly true. It was about graduating from high school and going on to college and, you know, entering the, the next stages of relationships, beginning relationships. You know, 1962 was a, a transitional time for America. It was just before the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It was just before Vietnam and surfing and hippies. And, you know, come the 70s, we get Nixon and cocaine and all these things. It was pre-space race, pre-civil rights. It was before the muscle, the, the, the muscle car revolution. It was before the pony car. So predating the Mustang and the Camaro, which changed the landscape of vehicles. You know, it was definitely before the energy crisis of the early 70s. You know, it was maybe the last, the last little, like, gap in America before it became some fucking monster that it is now, right? When America was still sweet, I guess, would be the word for it. But yeah, you know, there's a lot of real things in the movie. Mel's, Mel's is a real restaurant. Like I said, it was that one, that particular location was bulldozed, but it's a, seems to be a small, maybe, you know, couple of like franchisers, a couple of them in San Francisco and, and surrounding areas. I don't know what their status is or who owns them. Uh, my wife has gone there, but every time that I go there, we don't have plans to go there. So I've never actually gone to Mel's and Yes, I remember her forever for having the birthday party where I got to see American Graffiti, but I also remember forever that I haven't been to Mel's. So I, I remember a lot of things. It's very complicated. I'm not that mad about it, though. She got me a really cool shirt, though. Black shirt has a 55 or a 56, I think a 56 uh, Chevy, red. And it says, hey, didn't we meet at Mel's on the back? And that is maybe a very indicative of kind of that that inane conversation, that that conversation starter that you use to to have with you know people like starting a you know trying to talk to a girl or, or a boy like oh don't I know you from somewhere you know and that happened to me don't I know you from somewhere happened to me exactly once I was at a friend's house and I think this is before I was dating my then to be wife so I think it was just before just before I met her. Or I don't know. It must have been afterwards because I don't think I had long hair. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember exactly. But you know, some some girl that he knew through people, friends of friends, or whatever. It's like, hey, don't I know you from somewhere? And I looked at her and I said, no, I'd remember, and walked off. And then apparently the story of that night was like how I'm like a dick. I think I must have been dating my my then girlfriend because. You know, I don't think I had the long hair anymore. You know, I was maybe a little more clean cut and, uh, you know, functional, right? Enough that somebody would express interest in me. So, you know, I wasn't going to get into it with her either. Uh, but that was like a Ronin thing. That was uh, that was when Sean Bean asks, you know, Robert De Niro, don't I know you from somewhere? He just says, no, I don't remember. That was instantly, I just quick drew that line out. Pow. And the story of that night was how I'm a fucking dick and I'm mean and all these things. And I was like, I guess, I, I suppose. But I didn't understand that that was like a, like a conversation starter, 
nor did I really have the interest of having the conversation. So, you know, it's kind of a combination of things, but sometimes my social IQ, not the highest. And if I get to use a movie line, I'll fucking use it. It it can be obnoxious, I'm sure, but I enjoy every minute of it. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's what it's like being uh, in your early 20s or whatever. I'm sure that was, you know, to the nth degree when you were 17, right? So Mel's kind of still really embraces that that culture, that drive-in like type thing. And I love that. I love it to death. I love it to death because it, it doesn't exist anymore. When you, yeah, you get Sonic, but Sonic is like a, a pale echo. I, you know, I used to see Sonic all the time when I was a kid because I love the cars and all that stuff. And I love that my my kid loves cars. And I don't know where this is going to lead him, but he he loves it. So I'm definitely going to encourage it. <clears throat> so non sequitur, let's talk about the cars. Let's talk about the cars. I'm not going to talk about all the cars. There is a lot of cars. If you go to Car Movie Database, uh, I think it's like CIMDB or ICMDB or something like that. Or you can just search Car Movie Database. They're going to give you more information on those cars than you could ever fucking want. But these cars, oh, these cars, they are iconic to me. Kurt, uh, Kurt drove a, a Citroen 2CV, and it's, it's hilarious. This 2CV is hilarious to me, and a lot of it is because of Top Gear. Notoriously, they, uh, they drove one into the jet wash of a 747. You know things like that. It's not a it's not a well respected vehicle, and I guess it's kind of appropriate because Kurt's not like a macho guy. He's not a macho fancy guy. He's just a, you know, kind of a bookish. Kurt's a, a bookish romantic kind of just dude that just is there. He's cool enough so he can talk to anybody. You know, he's not like a hot nerd like Terry. You know, but Terry has a, a Vespa. Terry has a Vespa. I don't know what the fuck I called it earlier. I think I just called it a scooter. I hope I didn't give it like a completely wrong name. If I if I incorrectly named the Vespa, I'm sorry. Terry has a Vespa. We know a bit about Terry's Vespa from talking about that first scene. Falfa, though. Bob Falfa. Bob Falfa's 55 Chevy. Wow. So based on the audio, it's a big block car. Uh, there were only kind of two really major big blocks at the time that would have ended up in that car and they probably would have been a big block Chevy or uh, like a 440 Hemi. I think that had a 418 Hemi maybe at the time. But I love that car. I love that car. I love the sound. It's got the roll bar. It's got the big wide slicks. You know, I believe that it was... Um, I know that the car that they rolled was a car built for two-lane blacktop. And I will talk about Two Lane Blacktop probably next season. That is another movie that I fucking love, but for different reasons. But Two Lane Blacktop notoriously features a 55 Chevy, right? Just the theme song isn't Green Onions for Two Lane Blacktop. It's like closer. That it, I, we'll, we'll get to it. I, I wrote a clever line in there that I didn't use and it was dumb anyway. Um, so yeah, his big block was probably a 396, maybe a 409 uh, if it was a Chevy. Supposed to be probably a Hemi. Hemis were killer engines back then. I know that uh, Milner's 32 Coupe, which is another fucking iconic-ass vehicle that I 
probably wouldn't want to own because it seems like it might be way more of a pain in the ass than it looks. I'm also of a taller stature than most, and I probably wouldn't fit. But Milner's 32 Coupe is widely recognized as one of the most inf influential hot rods of cinema. One of the most influential vehicles, identifiable, identifiable vehicles of cinema. I have a picture of it, of several of the cars uh, in Universal Studios outside of the Mel's driving in Universal Studios, Florida. And it just, it fucking, it speaks to me. It's a, it's a five window, 32 Ford, um, quote unquote, piss yellow, no hood and a three inch chop on the top. Right. So it looks mean. It looks more meaner, not like super mean. It's not like a rat rod. Like we have taken that look of what we, we, we call them rat rods, but uh, maybe a more. So there's maybe a spectrum and it starts with traditional hot rods, which is maybe what I would call Milner's Coupe. Versus a rat rod, which is a very exaggerated version of a traditional hot rod, even though some people kind of, you know, live in the middle of that spectrum, kind of bouncing from one end to the other. But, um, you know, skinnies up front or pretty skinnies up front, motorcycle fenders, because you need fenders, right? Those are those are actual legal requirements. Uh, your headlights need to be 12 inches up, which the movie kind of touches on that a little bit. So the headlights are, are not where they should have been because the front is so low. You know, big rear tires. Um, it was initially supposed to have a Hemi. Um, that was definitely the motor of the era. But, you know, it has a, a small block Chevrolet. Uh, it was supposed to have an 8-pack, which is two four-barrel carbs, and that would have been fucking awful. Um, or did it have two four-barrels? God, now I need to look at a picture. Uh, John engine. Oh, it did have two four barrels. Oh, that, that must've been fucking terrible to drive. Guys, having a lot of carbs looks really cool, but it almost never pays off. Really, genuinely. And the magazines have all gone into it. It almost never pays off. So I had, had an APAC. It was two four barrels on a, small block that wasn't running all that much rpm i mean at least i don't think so the technology um kind of wasn't there and and it would be costly to run it but it had a double hump 327 heads they call those fuely heads because they were on the fuel injected corvettes um you know had the the kind of like the headers coming right into the pipes just out like right by the front doors you can burn the shit out of yourself on those so just be careful. They look cool. They sound loud, but they're dangerous. Uh, from what I understand, I looked up a little bit, uh, and I have a link somewhere that I should post in the notes. I should not fuck around with this. Should post it because it was a fucking great article on a great uh, Kips American Graffiti blog, I believe is the actual website. The actual car had either a 283 or a 327. And the 327, like, uh, like I mentioned before, I thought it was a 327 because it was the largest small block from the factory in 62 it was a corvette motor essentially and it was new for that year um you know so ultimately like in modern 
in modern thinking, the the motor's kind of dumb, but it looked awesome. You know, it sounded cool. Um, Steve's Impala also was a, a 327 swap. It was a 58 Impala that did not have a 327 available. I think it had a 283 available or something thereabouts, but Terry says it's got a 327 Chevy, lays rubber. So if he had a 327, he had a really cool paint job with a really cool motor that was very new. So it was a fucking cool car for the time, going back to Steve's Impala. Um, or did I never go to Steve's Impala at all? Then we are on Steve's Impala at the time because 327 kind of linked me there mentally. Uh, I think Terry says it has six Strombergs. It shouldn't because that's dumb. Like I said, the more carbs you have, the dumber it is. Um, but it probably is a 327 you know, with the Corvette, the Duntoff cam is like 340 horsepower. And the way they measured horsepower back then was different. It was it was very optimistic, but that was a, f a fast car, you know, with recent shit. So I don't know how he paid for it. Maybe Steve's family has money. I know Milner's a mechanic. Being a mechanic back then was a really good job. You did a lot of rebuilding of parts and things like that, and, and it paid more. Having a car was more expensive, you know, things. So... You know, maybe the used market was a lot better too, so you could flip parts and, and cars. But these are some pretty cool fucking vehicles for the time. And they have, for the time of the setting of the movie, in the 70s, maybe these were not as cool uh, and easier to come by. Just like in the 80s, um, I saw somebody on, on Instagram post the other day, and it's, uh, I think it's like three, like, Hemikudas or something like that or Hemi Challengers or Challenger TAs in in a parking lot. And they're like, it's not a car show. It's a high school parking lot in the early 80s. In the early 80s, people were giving these older muscle cars and stuff like that away because they were bad on gas and all that. So we're now in the the resurgence of this nostalgia and, and all that. Uh, I guess it's, you know, baby boomers. They fucked up the economy and then they have to fuck up the old cars for us youngins. But these are cool cars for the setting, kind of on the downtick, but people remembered them when the movie came out, but they are like mega cool to us now, right? Like super duper ultra cool. And, you know, in in car circles, in car culture, the 55, the 32, and even the 58 Impala have always been cool cars. You know, the Tri-5 Chevy is one of the more popular cars, and you could probably build one from parts in a catalog. And by build one, I mean you can buy an aftermarket chassis, something that'll take modern components and engines and, and transmissions and suspensions, and then get either fiberglass or or even maybe even steel repro uh, reproduction panels and kind of build it from there, you know? And it you know, when you build a car like that, it titling it is is difficult, but I'm just saying they're they're that popular. You could probably rebuild one just from a catalog, not having any original pieces. So those are the cars. That's the music. You know, that's kind of the making of the movie. And, you know, that's some of the characters. But this is already an hour and 11 minutes long on my recording here. I'm going to edit out some stuff. I have to pause a couple times uh, for the air conditioner, for water, things like that. So... We're over an hour at this point. I'm going to cut this up into two parts. And 
I'm going to take a break because I've been talking for an hour. So stay tuned for part two of American Graffiti. And in the meantime, I'd like to tell you about a live stream event that, uh, that I'm going to be part participating in in March. So March um, 9th through the 16th, it's going to be the Sunshine Summit hosted by Heather Welsh, the host of the Sunshine and Power Cuts podcast. And her podcast focuses on living off the grid and interacting with nature. But she does the Sunshine Summit to celebrate connections. And there's uh, several guests of different shows, podcasts, and otherwise kind of on. And we do like a, a live stream event, right? So they are interactive. They're fun. And it's like a conversation with, you know, be, be, between Heather and her guests and, and the audience. So I'm going to be on March 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern. So it would be awesome if you're a fan of this show to show up uh, to sunshinesummit.live March 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern because I would love to interact with you there. I would love to just kind of hang out and have fun, have a chat. Once again, you can get uh, the entire schedule at sunshinesummit.live, and that'll give you the whole nine, also the streaming links and links to the live chat. So I hope to see you there. Have you ever been reading through a stack of comics and thought, maybe I should see what the Sarkham Asylum game is all about? Or been playing Marvel vs. Capcom and felt like you were at a real disadvantage since you didn't know who half the characters were? Well, Play Comics is the show for you. I'm Chris, and each episode we take a look at video games based on comic properties and how well they stick to that source material. So whether you know the comics and want to know how all these games work, or you know the games and want to find out where all this craziness came from, go check out Play Comics at playcomics.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hello, it's Heather from the Sunshine and Power Cuts podcast. In association with Geeks Rising, from the 9th to the 16th of March, or 10th to the 17th if you're here in New Zealand, 2019, we are hosting the first 2019 Sunshine Summit. It's a week of live streams with amazing content creators and the theme of celebrating connections. All of the details for the upcoming summit, as well as replays from our previous events and where the live streams will be happening, can be found at sunshinesummit.live. A huge thank you to the patrons of Sunshine and Power Cuts for making that possible. So check it out, and if you know the guests, we'd love for you to come and celebrate with us. And if they are new to you, come along, learn more about them, and we look forward to celebrating connections with you.